The last page has been turned on my most recent read. I'm enjoying a warm, beautiful spicy chai as we've had nothing but rain and thunderstorms for almost a week. And I am ready to tell you all about the book I've just finished. So here I am, no spoilers, opinion filled as always, and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing, seriously, if it got any bigger, it would probably fall on me, to be red pile, and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. I'm now back at work after having a very relaxing fortnight away from my home office. Of course, my return coincided with a very sad day for my country, the passing of our longest reigning monarch. Now, I would never claim to be a monarchist, but it is the end of an era that lasted for 70 years. Elizabeth was the last queen that most, if not all of us, will know for several decades to come. So, God save the queen and long live the king. Oh, that actually felt really weird. (laughs) And it's felt weird for a multitude of people that I've spoken to since Thursday. This week, I am taking you all back to the 1950s with a book written by an author so far ahead of her time. I've already reviewed one of her books, Murder in the Vicarage, a few months ago. But this week, I am taking a look at a novel featuring a very famous Belgian detective who has set routines and a moustache he is incredibly proud of. Hickory Dickory Dock is the 30th of 39 Hercule Poirot sorry, I'm going to be saying it like that all the time. I can't say it any other way. Novels by Agatha Christie. So light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening, of course. And let's get started. Hickory Dickory Dock was first released on the 31st of October 1955 in the UK. Yep, it was a Halloween book. And in the US, it was released under the title Hickory Dickory Death, which doesn't quite have the same ring to it, I don't think, a month later. An outbreak of kleptomania at a student hostel was not normally the sort of crime that aroused Hercule Poirot's interest. But when he saw the list of stolen and vandalised items, including a stethoscope, some old flannel trousers, a box of chocolates, a slashed rucksack and a diamond ring found in a bowl of soup, he congratulated the warden, Mrs Hubbard, on a unique and beautiful problem. The list made absolutely no sense at all. But reasoned Poirot, if this was merely a petty thief at work, why was everyone at the hostel so frightened? So... Is this a simple case? Seriously? This is an Agatha Christie novel. Nothing is ever simple or straightforward. And this story is no different. The case itself starts off as one that seems relatively harmless, though perhaps baffling. Miss Lemon, 
Poirot's ever-present, efficient and relatively silent secretary tells him of her sister, Mrs Hubbard, who works as the housekeeper at a student hostel, something that in the early days when students studied abroad was actually a popular and relatively cheap and safe way to stay in a foreign country. They've reported some unusual thefts. And unusual they definitely are. A single dress shoe, a scarf that was shredded, a backpack, also shredded, a jar of brassic powder, which is used to treat minor cuts and wounds, a box of chocolates, electric light bulbs, bath salts, a stethoscope, a lipstick, powder compact, cigarette lighter, a costume bracelet, a cookery book, a pair of earrings, old flannel trousers, and a diamond ring that was found the day after it went missing. All in all, a relatively harmless list, and hardly the sort of thing that requires a world-class private detective to solve. However, Mrs Hubbard is concerned, because this is her job on the line, and the owner of the house, Mrs Nicoletis, doesn't want the police involved. But she also doesn't want the reputation of her property to be damaged. Along the way, we're introduced to some interesting characters, namely many of the residents of the house, Though it seems unfair, all of them could be the one we're looking for, because the crime seems to be without rhyme or reason. The thefts, while inconvenient, make no sense. The one truly valuable item has been returned, and no one has thus far been harmed. But that doesn't mean it will always stay that way. This is Agatha Christie, after all. Every single person in the book could have motive. They're all a little less than transparent, and because the thefts are insignificant in comparison with a murder, for example, this is just a puzzle that Poirot would love to solve, because that's what he's doing and he's going through a quiet moment. Under the guise of giving the students a lecture on his past career highlights and how he carries out the solving of a crime, Poirot goes to the house on Hickory Road the meaning for the title, where he has the pleasure of meeting all the students. And it's as though things start to click in his brain as he spends the evening with not only the victims of the thefts, but also the potential suspects. Nothing else has gone missing since, but with the criminal still at large, the potential is there. The house is home to everyone from medical students to a girl who works in the hospital pharmacy, But the more you get to know about the inhabitants of 26 Hickory Road, the more you realise that they all have secrets, whether it's something they want to hide from their past or something that seems so insignificant but still places them in the suspect pool. Len Bateson seems like a jolly bloke. He's a medical student who takes just a little bit of joy in telling Mrs Hubbard that he has spent his day cutting up cadavers. Nigel Chapman initially appears to be stuffy and standoffish. Valerie Hobson works in and partly owns a beauty parlour, which does beg the question as to why she is in need of a room in student accommodation. Sally Finch is a young American studying in London. She is a Fulbright scholar and the sort of student Mrs Nicoletis wants to encourage to stay in her house. However, with all the thefts, she is now contemplating moving. Celia Austin is a shy girl who works at the pharmacy at St Catherine's Hospital. Elizabeth Johnston is a student from Jamaica in England studying law theory, which in itself is fascinating. Akim Bombo is a student from West Africa, though it's never established what he's studying. 
Patricia Lane is English and studying archaeology. And Colin McNabb is doing a postgrad in psychology and constantly questions Poirot's motives for investigating the crime. And not only that, starts to question his reasonings when he is actually trying to establish motive. There are many more students living in the house, but these are the ones that Poirot meets while in it. And though others are mentioned, it is to these people he looks when contemplating his suspects. And I know that sounds kind of like a shopping list, but the way in which they are all introduced could give away a plot twist or two. And I really do think that you'd benefit, not benefit, but enjoy reading this book. There are so many twists and turns, which I know sounds odd when you consider it appears on the surface that the book is about nothing more than the theft of some unrelated and unusual items. I mean, why steal one shoe? And who would want to steal a powder compact or a lipstick? The diamond ring I can understand, but it is returned the very next day in a bowl of soup. So the reasoning behind it is simply odd. The more Poirot looks into these thefts, the more he grows to realise that there was no reason for them. And he is relatively quick to identify the thief and their, albeit unusual, purpose. Celia Austin is a kleptomaniac and she stole the items in an effort to get the attention of psychology student Colin McNabb, who she's enamoured of. The crime has been solved and you expect that to be the end of it. However, there is still the mystery of who destroyed the scarf and the backpack. The damage to these items makes no sense when compared with everything else that went missing. None were destroyed. They were purely a tool to get attention. Despite the mystery having been solved, Poirot doesn't feel that the case is over. And he's not wrong. Poor Celia, despite making reparation for the thefts and getting the attention of Colin who proposes, it appears that the guilt has become too much and she's found dead in her room, an overdose of morphine. Initially, it appears that she committed suicide, but the more Poirot and Inspector Sharp look into the events surrounding her death, including the thefts, the more obvious it becomes that this was murder. Of course, it doesn't end there. Poor Celia is dead the morning after Colin announced their engagement and there is still the mystery of the damaged backpack, the torn scarf and why the diamond ring was returned so soon after it was stolen. What started as a simple case of theft has become the murder of a young girl but then Mrs Nicolettis is found dead, another poisoning and then Patricia Lane is bludgeoned to death in her room. So we have three murders, no apparent motive, and nothing to seemingly connect the three deaths. Of course, the crime is solved, but not before, as the reader, you're dragged into a drug and diamond smuggling ring, the cover-up of an old murder, which seemingly ties to these, and the unveiling of not one, but two secret identities. As is the way with all Agatha Christie novels, the plots all marry up in the end, but not without a few gasps of shock, a few unexpected revelations, and the sad loss of two likeable characters and one spiteful and miserable one. It's a roller coaster ride, and it's a pretty exciting one, in my opinion. Before I get into what I thought of this book, you know that I like to make sure it's balanced. So what did other reviewers think? 
Payanji gave the book only two stars, and her reasoning is actually interesting. An intriguing beginning gone awry and a clever plot defiled by implausible events is all I could say about this novel of the Poirot series. The idea of a possible kleptomaniac in a student hostel sounds interesting. It is. And this original theme attracted me very much to the story. It started well, I must say, with the problem being brought to the notice of our dear Poirot by his secretary, Miss Lemon, and Poirot assisting Miss Lemon's sister, Mrs Hubbard, the warden of the hostel. But when the disappearance of items comes to an end with the confession of the false kleptomaniac, and in its stead, murder takes place, and the whole plot is changed. The story begins to go downhill with the monotony of the criminal investigation. The opinionated statements by Christie about the suspects and her constant defence as to the innocence of one suspect was a bit tiresome, and this deliberate attempt at misleading the readers was not too pleasing. Poirot's ingeniousness was in its best element, and he solves the mystery, which was baffling to both the police and the readers. But even with Poirot, certain inferences that he made sounded too fantastic. For example, his knowledge of the contents of a certain letter by a dying man to his solicitor. The true relationship between two characters came out of the blue without any previous hint as to how Poirot could draw such a conclusion. Also, the student characters were so stereotyped, which made them uninteresting. It was all right on the whole, but I would have liked it more had she been a little more careful in her creative effort. Sometimes it can be challenging to read a book where opinion is very different to your own. Modern sensibilities crop up, and I will possibly go into that a little bit later, though it's not as problematic in a book like this as it is with a book like Heart of Darkness just as an example. Adrian read this as part of a two and a half year Poirot readathon and rated it five stars. As the Poirot buddy read draws to a close, five books to go, after two and a half years, I am still happily surprised when I come across a book that not only do I not remember, but I thoroughly enjoy and give five stars to. Monsieur Poirot becomes suspicious when Ms. Lemon makes a number of mistakes in the letter she has typed for him. Why? How can this be? The reliable, unfazed Ms. Lemon, in error, may not. It transpires her sister returned from Singapore a widow, and having to take a job as a housekeeper of student accommodation has been given, having some problems. Poirot, intrigued, listens to Miss Lemon's story of her sister, and then invites the sister to tea to learn more. A large house lived in by a number of students of varying nationalities has been experiencing some strange robberies and vandalism. What connects these strange thefts? Poirot is determined to find out. Toot sweet. A wonderful Poirot and a wonderful book full of twists and turns. What starts out as the stealing of a shoe ends in murder. Can Poirot bring it to a successful and speedy conclusion? Of course. So where do I fall when it comes to this book? Here's where I always get into the nitty gritty. Did I like the mystery? I have read a considerable number of Agatha Christie books and spent many a Sunday evening watching John Suchet playing Poirot on TV with my nan. However, I'm not sure I ever read this book before I bought it a couple of months ago. And I have to be honest, I only bought it because I had the other three Christie novels on the shelves at Waterstones already. Having said that, 
this mystery wasn't one that I read and easily solved. It really wasn't. (laughs) The number of characters felt a bit tiresome at times because there were a lot of people to keep up with. It felt like a George R.R. Martin novel at times. And occasionally, as I was reading through it, though I did finish it in one afternoon, I got a little confused as to who was who, especially when it came to the male students living in the house, Colin, Len and Nigel. With all three of them coming across initially as incredibly similar in mannerism and appearance, it was different to differentiate between them, even after the first murder occurred. Some of the characters felt as though they were included for no reason whatsoever, especially, and I really hate to say this, the ones who came from West Africa, Egypt, India and Jamaica. It felt as though Christie had included them only to stereotype them, which was unnecessary, and I feel that this may be what Payanji was referring to in her review. However, overall the plot, disregarding the number of characters that did feel superfluous most of the time, It was incredibly clever. We had, of course, a number of red herrings, including the original crime of theft. And though many would feel that these red herrings were deceiving the reader, I feel that they were a necessity to give us a false sense of security. Will I read more by Agatha Christie? I am actually a long-term fan of Christie's novels, having read a considerable number of them over the years. The funny thing is that one of the last gifts my dad received before he passed away in 1985 was a copy of an Agatha Christie novel, and I think that's probably what started my fascination with them. I can still see the cover. It was a skeleton with a snake, and it's probably a long-since out-of-print edition, but for the life of me, I cannot remember the title. I can't even remember what it said on the back. I just remember the cover. I have a few more on the bookshelf that I will be getting to at some point, including Evil Under the Sun and The Murder on the Links. But there are a few more cosy mystery and crime authors I think have a lot of merit that I should probably be giving a little love to. If you're looking for something like this, or you loved this and want something else, then this is where you should look. Of course, here I could just recommend authors that I've already reviewed, such as M.C. Beaton with her Agatha Raisin mysteries, though I will stress that the earlier books in this series are much better than the more recent ones, and I've reviewed a couple, so I'll post the links below. Then there's Kerry Greenwood and the books following Miss Friny Fisher in Australia. I reviewed the first in the series a few weeks ago, and though it's not as good as the TV show based on the books, it still has some merit, and if you like cosy crime based in the Roaring Twenties, this is a good place to start. Of course, many of you will likely love Richard Osman's books, starting with The Thursday Murder Club. I have to be honest, as you will likely have listened to the review I posted, and if you haven't, the link is in the notes, This book wasn't really one for me, but I am going to give the second one a go at some point, and I have heard that it's much better. I recently read a book called Death on the Pier by a new author, Jamie West. Though the book doesn't come out for a few more weeks yet, it is similar in many ways to Agatha Christie with twists and turns and revelations that are completely unexpected. I'm going to be talking with Jamie about his inspiration and his characters in a few weeks, so make sure you tune in for that one. Another book that you may enjoy is one that also comes out in October, The Cat Who Caught a Killer by L.T. Shearer, 
really fun but also dark at points with a great cast of interesting characters and though it's obviously about murder given the title the cat conrad is an intriguing addition and it's very different We're halfway through September and, as I have promised, it's one of the busiest months for book releases, but it's also getting much colder. This week alone we've had four thunderstorms, a few torrential downpours, and my washing is no longer drying when I hang it out on the line. Do I have a tumble dryer? Yep, but who wants to use that all the time? With darker mornings and, to be honest, duller skies all round, it's the perfect time to get stuck into a book, and I have definitely been doing that. This week alone, I finished three books and enjoyed all of them, including one that I have already planned to review next week. I even stayed up until 3am on Monday morning to read as much of one as I could before I finally forced myself to go to bed. Talk about harking back to the days when I was a student. So... What does that take my book count to? 89 right now. Yay! And given my reading target for the year was actually 50, I think that's pretty good going. I plan on starting the next book after I finish this episode, so hopefully by next week I'll be closer to 100. I have been very disciplined with books and have bought none this week. You might be surprised at that or shocked. I know I am. Though I did buy a new journal, which I am enjoying writing in. Strange, but hey, this is me we're talking about. Book season has begun, though, and those two books I mentioned last week, Ithaca and Agatha Christie, are both on my wish list, just waiting for me to press by now. Despite the fact that my TBR continues to grow, albeit slower at the moment, I know that is not going to restrict me and my choices and my decisions in buying new books. So if there is a fiction novel you think I would love, I am not going to say no. So recommend away. I'm always open to new recommendations. Send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will be sure to check them out. There's quite a lot going on this week when it comes to book releases, so let's not waste any more time and take a look at what's on the schedule for the week beginning the 12th of September. Like the Absurd and the Weird, then What If 2 by Randall Munro, a book that asks and answers all the strangest questions from what if a lava lamp was made of real lava to how to design a plane catapult should be added to your shelf. I've already mentioned Richard Osman this week, and the third in his Thursday Murder Club series, The Bullet That Missed, is due to be released this Thursday. So if you loved those and are eager for more, get adding books to your basket. Natalie Haynes has another book in her mythology series due out this week. Stone Blind is the story of Medusa. I personally think that this Gorgon really got pretty tough press, so it'll be interesting to see how this book interprets that particular myth. I know that it's already out in the US, but Jeanette McCurdy's rather controversially titled autobiography, I'm Glad My Mum Died, is released in the UK this week. It seemed like she had a really tough time as a child, and the title of the book reflects this pretty accurately. 
There are a number of new books coming out over the next few days, but we are still in September, so the trend continues. If you want to find out more, sign up for my newsletter by clicking the button on my website or heading to my Twitter page. So how are things in the bookish household this week? I returned to work this Thursday and as many of you, if you aren't on a media ban, will know, the Queen at 96 passed away. Now I'm going to stress that while it's very sad for her family and for a nation who have grown up with Elizabeth as their monarch, I am not going to sit here and spout pro or anti-monarchist stuff, partially because I think it's in poor taste and partially because I sit firmly on the fence as far as this goes. What I will say is that though I did not feel devastated at the loss of someone I did not know, I did have a bit of a cry because it made me remember my own grandmother who passed away 14 years ago. I'm not going to get all graphic, but she was the first person I have ever seen dead. And coming from someone who went to their first funeral at the age of 11 and has been to more funerals than weddings. I know that's going to sound maybe a little bit unusual, but we don't sit, we don't tend to have in my family at least, open coffin funerals. Everyone that I've known that has passed on has been cremated. It's been a closed coffin funeral and we've never seen the body. However, when it came to my grandmother, I was her carer for more than a year. In fact, a lot more than a year. And I was there when she passed away. It was incredibly traumatic, very sad. And I'm not going to harp on about it because everybody has their own experience of death, whether that's friends, family, or just people they knew, acquaintances, or even family that they didn't know very well. And everyone is affected by death differently. I know that there will be a lot of hysteria in the media. And I've, I've seen it. We've already seen it. We've seen it multiple times across the decades. People getting very upset about the death of someone else. However, my in my mind, it's not so much the death of this person that has affected them. It is their memory of someone they knew. The Queen, for me at least, and for some of the other people that I've spoken to, it's not so much her passing that is devastating. It is the memories that that has brought up in them. And for me, it is the memories of my grandmother, who was an incredibly loyal monarchist. She was royal family through and through. She wasn't a member of the royal family, don't get me wrong, but she was a huge supporter of the royal family. She watched all the weddings, watched all the funerals, and she mourned with everyone else that did. One thing that did upset me, and I don't normally step out of my comfort zone on the internet, when it comes, especially when it comes to social media, because I know how horrible it can be, However, as part of my job, I manage our social media channels and I was monitoring I was monitoring the channels for everything that occurred after Thursday evening. And it was awful. 
it's brought up such anger from some corners, whether that's because they're angry at the royal family, they're angry at the money that's being spent on a state funeral or whatever. It has brought up a lot of anger and bile from some corners. And I don't think I'm made for that personally. It's incredible to see how angry some people get about something, especially if it doesn't directly affect them. This is a time to grieve the people we've lost as individuals, an excuse to mourn, or not an excuse, but a time to mourn the people that we miss. So when we have a day off in the United Kingdom on Monday the 19th, I will be using this as a time to mourn the people that I have lost personally, my grandparents, my dad, People that I went to school with that passed away far too young. Friends and a considerable number of family members. I will be remembering them, especially my grandmother who would have been devastated had she lived to lose the Queen. She was three years younger. My, my grandmother was born in 1929 and as I said, she was a massive fan of the Queen. But this actually made me remember so much the times that we spent together and the debates that we'd have regarding the royal family. The death of the Queen hasn't made me mourn the Queen. It's very sad and I feel horrific for anyone who has lost a loved one. It is time for me and an opportunity for me to mourn the family and friends that I have lost and I I honestly believe that that's why people are sad. It's the end of an era. We have left the second Elizabethan age and we are now entering the third Carolean age. Don't ask me. I really don't understand where they got that from. But it's also a time to remember our grandparents and our parents if they have passed and all the people that died during COVID, whether that was from COVID or something else. It is a day to reflect more than anything. And it's very hard to separate grieving someone you don't know, namely the Queen, and the family that you love and you bonded with and you knew. But they seem to become inextricably linked when people as a whole, as a nation, maybe globally are processing a massive change. And that's what this is. This is a huge change for my entire life and the entire life of my mother who was born in 1954. So a year after the coronation and two years after the queen ascended the throne. My mum has always had a queen. I've always had a queen. My grandmother was 23 when the queen became the queen it is a habit and when you hear something, when something changes, it does become difficult. But it also makes you reflect on everything that occurred. And during the Queen's reign, I, my mother was born, I was born, my father was born the year before she ascended the throne. Wow, that seems really weird. And in that time... The nation, the world has changed significantly. 
and many people close to me and close to others have passed away. Wow, this is really depressing. I am so sorry. I suppose all of this to say yesterday when I was talking with my mum, she started to talk. She is also like my grandmother before her, a monarchist. And all I could think about was my grandmother. And it made me cry a lot for a long time. And it made me realise that that is the sort of bond you don't get back when it's gone. So treasure the people that are close to you, whether they are friends or family. And that's all I can really say, apart from being incredibly depressed. I'm so sorry. Well, that's it for this week. And thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website where I post book reviews, beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and a new book is calling me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell.